Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, coaches, trainers, and students who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest clinical athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have the Clinical Athlete Forum, where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to athlete health and performance to join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. We have a ton of barbell certifications coming up as well as lots of free content on our new website in the form of videos and articles, so check it all out. This podcast can also be found on the website along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. And if you like the show and the platform you use allows you to give it a rating, that's always appreciated. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. I'm joined by Jared Maynard, who is the Clinical Athlete Continuing Education Director and Coordinator and a physiotherapist in Ontario, Canada. He's also a strength coach and runs an online powerlifting coaching company and is a competitive powerlifter himself. What's up, Jared? Not much, man. It's been a good, busy day, and now I'm excited to be here, have a good conversation, and then eat, sleep, and do it all again. Hey, it could be a lot worse. Oh, it could be. Like, there's, there's no complaining here. I'm, I'm happy to have had a busy day doing some pretty awesome stuff. And John Flag couldn't join us tonight due to scheduling, so we all miss, we all miss him and the beard. Jared, you're holding down the beard game tonight. Yeah, it's a sad day. Well, I'm doing what I can. It's, it's, if it was not you, it was going to be me. And that's real bad. Uh, <laughs> Your words. Yeah. Because our guest has no beard. Uh, we're also very excited to welcome <laughs> onto the show Daniel Adler Crute, who is a physical therapist and owner of Starting Line PT and Performance in Portland, Maine. Danielle, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Oh, we're super excited because you're going to be doing two clinical athlete webinars for us coming up on August 4th and 26th, all about the endurance athlete. And the first one is going to be kind of geared towards the the general recreational endurance athlete. It's And it's titled The Three E's to Running, Easy, Efficient, Effective. And the second webinar will be tailored more towards the healthcare professional who treats the competitive endurance athlete. And that one's going to be titled the endurance athlete from pain to performance. So there's obviously a ton of stuff to unpack there in either one of those. So we wanted to get you on the show to dig into them a little bit more before taking that deeper dive with the webinars. But before we do that, can you tell our six listeners a little bit more about yourself and what's led to your current professional interests and also your personal athletic interests? Absolutely. Uh, so I graduated from Sacred Heart University in 2013. Uh, from there, I moved to Boston and got my first job in an outpatient orthopedics. Uh, was not a runner uh, by any stretch of the imagination. I, in fact, hated running, um, which is always a fun fact <laughs> about myself. Uh, then working with colleagues that were also runners, they had, uh, heard that I maybe wanted to do my first half marathon. So, uh, my PT career and my running career kind of grew together, which was really cool. 
so I continued to work in outpatient orthopedics. I switched jobs in 2015, um, and that's when I joined forces with Boston PT Wellness. Um, and that's really where uh, my running passion kicked off because um, Dave allowed me to branch off and start doing run evaluations, and that opened up the doors for coaching. So it you know, as a runner, you know, I was a beginner at some point and I was getting hurt. So I was like, well, if I'm getting a hurt and I'm a physical therapist, then what can I be doing for, for runners that, you know, don't have that background. So that kind of forced me into learning more about it and learning how to manage these injuries and getting people back on the road sooner. And you've been running some races yourself. I have. And you did the Boston Marathon. Well, you've done the Boston Marathon several times. And yes. and PR, uh, just PR'd your, your best time here in the last one, didn't you? I did. I did. Uh, so for the past five years, I've run the Boston Marathon for a charity called Dana-Farber Marathon Challenge. So Dana-Farber is a huge uh, cancer hospital in Boston. Um, and I got involved with that in 2015 and continued to do it through this year. And this year I finally broke my goal of four hours. Uh, so that was, that was exciting. Um, and about three, three years ago, I got into triathlons as well. Uh, so that's kind of brought in my horizon in the athletes that I'm treating, um, not just runners, but also triathletes. I have a hard time imagining doing anything for four hours straight. <laughs> I can't even sleep for four hours straight. <laughs> yeah. Danielle, are you going to, so what are your goals now from, from there to just keep chopping time down? Or are you going to look more into the triathlons or just kind of keep doing both? Um, a little bit of both. Um, I, I think I'm going to take a short break from, from marathons. Um, or look at other marathons. I'm, I'm going to take a break from Boston uh, next year uh, and maybe look at some other local marathons. But I definitely want to do, I've done one half Ironman. I would like to do another half Ironman next year and potentially dabble with a full Ironman. So there it is. I put it out there to the universe. Um, it's, it's official. So I have I have people to hold me accountable. You have six, um, six people, six people. Um, so I don't know when that will happen next year, but, uh, something I've been discussing with my coach. So, so it's interesting with your background where you mentioned there was a, a time not too long ago where you hated running and now here you are kind of immersed in the endurance sport, just kind of in general, I, I want to take the conversation kind of along that route. So if we have an individual, maybe they didn't hate running. Maybe they've actually always liked running, but they just haven't really done it as a, as a enjoyable activity or, or something to do competitively. And they say, you know what? I want to make running a thing. I think I'm going to start doing that. Um, having no knowledge of how to move forward. What are some initial considerations that somebody like that should take into account? So, if there's someone that, well, I won't talk as if I'm coaching them, <laughs> but if they're just going to go for it, one, you know, you want to make sure that there aren't any current injuries present. Um, but, you know, something simple that I screen is 
Like, can you tolerate walking for 30 to 40 minutes? Can you stand on one leg without discomfort? Can you hop without discomfort? So kind of taking them through a, a battery of, of tests. And that's something that they can do themselves. Be like, all right, am I good? Um, but if they haven't run in a long time, like I'm talking six months or, or more, I would highly ha- uh, recommend that they also are including a lot of fitness walking. So that's like arms pumping, brisk walk, anything between 3.2 to 3.5 miles per hour. Um, just making sure that they're increasing the overall time on their feet, but at a decreased load than just running seven days a week. Um, I would also recommend that they start with a walk run program. So something as basic as run one minute, walk one minute, repeat 10 times, you know? Um, and then as they start to build up their endurance, building up the, time of running and decreasing the time of walking until they can sustain about 40 minutes consistently. Um, so it will look a little bit different for, for everyone, but like I have a guy right now that I'm coaching who has run marathons before, um, but has taken a significant amount of time off and probably hasn't run in call it six months. So right now I have him, um, walking like fitness walking for up to 30 minutes, uh, about three times a week. And I only have him running two days a week. And that's a combination of a walk run. And right now, like he's tolerating that very well. And probably within the next week or so, we'll add that third day of running. Um, but that's something that I, I tell people in the beginning, like, just trust the process. Like you just need time on your feet right now because there's so much time to train for this marathon that he has in November that like, why, why are we going to go straight to five days a week of running and, you know, set him up for an unsuccessful training cycle. So you're saying there should be a progression. Yes. (laughs) Classic, classic PT. No, I, it's so funny. I, I see that. I don't think people, I think people forget that that type of, of walking is an option. It's either do, do exactly what I'm doing now, which is nothing at all, or just start running as much running as I can possibly fit into my schedule. And then, and they're surprised when things start to kind of fall off the rails a little bit, or if that were to happen, like, Oh, I used to do this all the time. Cause, cause I see, I'm sure you do too, but I see people who haven't run in years. And just, you know, somebody bought them a pair of shoes for Christmas and they're like, oh, I'll start running again. I used to like it 20 years ago, you know, and then, and then bam, they, they spike their workload and running and they, and they kind of fall off that cliff and it's, then we're digging a hole. Do you see that a lot as well? Yeah. Uh, not, not necessarily with multiple years off, but even just a couple months, they'll literally be like, Oh, I don't run in the winter. And then they'll start back up with spring training and the first four weeks of, you know, running in April. Well, in Maine spring starts in June, but (laughs) you know, those first couple weeks, everyone gets themselves in trouble and they're not just going out for like leisurely runs, like to get used to it. They're like, you know what? I'm going to go do a speed workout. I'm like, (laughs) why? Why? Like (laughs) you've not run in six months and you're going to start with a speed workout. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Let's rewind. (laughs) It's like framing running. I think 
doesn't quite like if you were to say, what if if you injured your knee and to the same person we're having this conversation, if you injured your knee, would you start rehabbing it by going out and doing box jumps as hard and as fast as you possibly could? Or would you do some like slow, easy lunges and squats and just see where you're at? And they'd probably be like, well, yeah, oh, that, I'm not going to do that. That's stupid. But it's it's the kind of the same idea. But the, the it's not the context just doesn't quite click with that but it's if anything you know running is a very plyometric activity and you've got many times your body weight going into your tissues with every step and if you haven't prepared for that you know these are the types of things that that we can see so it's it's funny it's funny that you say that your first webinar titled the three e's to running easy efficient effective Obviously, you're going to go into more detail during the webinar itself, but can you give a brief synopsis of what those terms mean to you as a clinician, as you're educating the endurance athlete, but also what the endurance athlete should take away from those three terms as well? Yeah. So that this was like the first presentation that I ever uh, put, put together to just get the information out there that... Training doesn't have to be overcomplicated. It doesn't need to be filled with these words that for like and tempo and like all of this verbiage that we're like, what, you know, it could be really simplified. So I want it to be easy, not only to apply into a workout, but easy to understand. So I go over like really basic warmups. You don't have to spend 40 minutes stretching because you're not going to stretch before a, a workout. You don't have to spend 80 hours a week foam rolling, you know, it, it could be very simplified, but also introducing the principles of strength training, um, that's been shown to be highly effective, um, in complementing an endurance athlete's training program, um, because it improves efficiency. So, you know, showing how all of these things can go hand in hand to make a more well-rounded, um, training cycle. When you, when you start to work with somebody, I want to talk about the easy component there. Mm -hmm. When you start to frame things for them in a way that sort of demystifies a lot of the training program, do, do many of them or some of them have like a light bulb moment where it's suddenly like you've pulled back the veil and they, they're now seeing running as this, not so much as like this big complex endeavor, but more like, oh, this, this seems more manageable and I can see myself doing that. Does that happen ever or often? Yeah, I would say probably more with more with the people that I've been coaching because then they get a window into my thought process and and how I'm allocating the the workouts. Like I've had people who are used to running 5 or 6 days a week and I actually bring them down to 3 or 4 days and throw in a little bit of, uh, fitness walking either as a warm up and or cool down, or even just as a workout by itself. And they're like, wow, like I actually feel a lot better and I feel stronger during my workouts. Like I feel better and I'm doing less. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> how, how does that initial pitch go? Like when you say like, we're going to do a little less running and more of these other things, do they start to pump the brakes? and like panic because suddenly you're suggesting they do less of it. I've gotten a little bit of pushback. People definitely feel uneasy about it at first. Like the first couple of weeks, they're definitely like, 
Okay. She knows what she's doing, (laughs) but like I'll put in their program, like Mm -hmm. it'll be a day off. And I say, go for a walk. If you feel antsy, like I know you're used to doing something seven days a week. Right. So you can go for a short walk, but really like your body wants rest. So once I I feel like after two or three weeks that they, it starts to set in and Mm -hmm. they, they get it. Um, but yeah, I've definitely had a couple of people of like, are you sure I shouldn't be doing more? Yeah. So you'll build in some outlets for the people that you figure probably need them? Yes. Nice. <laughs> Smart. Along the same lines, do you get any pushback when you recommend more strength training for the endurance athlete than they have done in the past? Uh, yeah, I have. And I think I've seen that both on the rehabilitation side and the, and the coaching side. Um, cause if I'm, if, if I'm working as, uh, with them from a PT side of things, like strength training is definitely what we're implementing to get them back to running. Um, and I I've gotten the, like, but what if I get, I don't want to get bulky and I don't want to, and I'm like, that's not going to happen. I was like, you're not, you're not training in that way. I'm, I'm not programming you to to, to, to get that type of muscle and you need to eat differently <laughs> to have all these things happen. Um, but I tell them like, even if you've, you know, if you've never strength trained, even doing some band work and body weight stuff initially for the first, you know, four to five weeks, that's still going to elicit a change for you because it's more than your baseline. And then they're like, Oh, like it, it, it's more just like, I keep like, turning on light bulbs. (laughs) I feel like that that's been a lot of what I do, just educating them on, on these simple changes that they can make to make their running better and feel better. And then, yeah, once that gets really easy, yes, you have to add some sort of weight to create a, a stimulus change, but to start off, you don't have to do that much and they, you don't have to do it five days a week, two, two to three, if you're in your off season, great. Does the conversation change at all? If when we're talking about a recreational endurance athlete or, or somebody who's just starting and a more competitive athlete, the, I guess, what are the challenges between the two? Um, hmm. I would say, oh, you can no, you, go ahead, go ahead. Um, the, the beginner or, or the, or the more recreational runner, I think it's, it's getting them on board to invest in themselves a little bit more, even though they're like, Oh, I'm not trying to PR. I'm not trying to win. It's like, yes, but you're still trying to have a consistent routine of running. So if you want to be able to do this for the next 20 years, regardless, if you want to get faster or anything like keeping your muscles and joints healthy and strong is, is going to allow you to do that. I don't care if you're not the fastest person, that's not the point. And that's not your goal. Your goal is to be able to run three miles without walking. Great. You still need to strength train, you know? So I think it's getting them to understand that 
what they're doing is still really important, even if they're not, you know, trying to BQ or come in, you know, first in their age group. Um, as compared to a competitive athlete, I think they're obviously trying to, to get better in a different way. They might be trying to win or PR, but they likely have a bit more experience, which can sometimes come with bad training habits or they're, they're kind of stuck in their ways. So you have to kind of determine like, are they ready to be coached? Are they ready to change those, those habits? So you kind of have to, you know, dance around a little bit and, and kind of meet them where they're at, because if they're not ready to change and you just start throwing these things like, Oh, I know this is going to get you faster. They're not really going to pick up on that kind of, kind of how it is with PT. You know, if we, if we just throw all these things, Oh, this will make you better, but they're not ready to change some of those activity modifications. That change isn't going to happen. Yeah. We've talked about flipping people's worlds upside down on this show and like changing everything all at once. Even if, you know, for this, for the elite athlete, it's decrease your frequency, um, decrease some of your intensity on some of those days, just in some of those days, increase your strength training during certain periods of your training cycle. Not all, you know, you still, your, your training will look still specific at certain points of the year, but those are like, big, each one of those things are big changes for somebody who's kind of been ingrained in their own, like you said, just quote unquote, stuck in their ways. Do you prioritize kind of start a starting place for, for somebody like that, who, you know, is, is going to listen to you. They're, they're hearing you, but maybe is not going to be just right off the bat willing to, to change it all. Do you say, let's, let's prioritize this first and see how that does. And then, and then we can layer on this and this, even if this is not what you're saying, but in your mind, that's kind of how you're tearing it. Yeah. So, um, most of the people I've coached have been local. Um, the people that aren't local to me, um, I don't necessarily always have the opportunity to do a run evaluation, but majority of the people I've coached have been prior patients um, or I have done run evaluations with them. So I kind of know and get a window into areas that would they, they would best benefit from working on, whether it be drills or mobility or strengthening. So I kind of give them best bang for their buck. Like, all right, if, if this is all you're going to do, please just do these three exercises. You can do them as part of your warm up. You can do them as part of your cool down. They can be part of your other workouts. Like however you want to infuse them into your routine, go for it. And then it's just the ball is in their court. They know where I'm coming from of like what they need to prioritize. And it's up to them to make that happen. And then once I see that they're taking that on, then I know if I can put a little bit more in their, in their bucket, if you will. Just keep it easy at first. Yeah. You know, and I, the education piece is interesting with, with competitive athletes because sometimes they are a bit more hard headed, but at the same time, they also care and they, and they also care about some of the, I don't want to say the science, but kind of like you're able to explain things a little bit more to them because they'll take it into account, like force strength training, for example, you know, 
if you're stronger, you can produce more force into the ground, which can help during certain points in your race, like these types of things. Um, and that can make sense to somebody. So, you know, it's like you said, you just keep chipping away. You mentioned drills there, and I wanted to ask you about biomechanics because you, you opened kind of talking about workload, which seems like a low hanging fruit. You know, if you're doing a little bit more than you can recover from, let's, let's manage that. That's easy. That's in, that can be done. You don't even need to see me for that. We can have a phone call, you know, that type of thing. But then you mentioned a lot of your athletes are local, which is nice. And you can actually watch them move is how much does, does running biomechanics matter? Are there, are there certain guidelines like specific rules of thumb that you would say across the board is probably a good idea, like step rate or something like that? Or is it, or is it very individual and some running technique that you see in one athlete you may let fly and on another athlete you might intervene on? Um, I, a, a lot of times it, it does depend. There are like guidelines that I look at. So I'm, I'm going to look at their step rate. I'm going to look at their strike pattern. Um, I'm going to look at the shoes that they're, they're, wearing. Um, but it's not a a one size fits all. I'm not trying to get every single person to be a four foot striker or a mid foot striker or heel striker. Like all of those striking patterns are viable ones until they're not, you know, they, and, and that's something that I I've learned from my coach and mentor, uh, Chris Johnson. That's something that he always says, but you know, people should be able to accommodate those to different terrains. So going uphill versus downhill versus if they're running on a trail, those striking patterns are gonna going to vary. So the big things that I'm looking for um, are someone that's over striding. So taking really big strides with their, uh, their knee, like hyperextended, and then they're aggressively striking on their heel or over striking. So really landing hard. Um, those are the two things that I'm, I'm paying attention to. Uh, if there's, you know, and that at that point, I'll probably take a peek at their cadence or their step rate and see where they're falling in the range. Um, typically if they're falling below 160, that that's where I'm going to try and, um, make some changes. No longer is it the average of 180, um, which that used to be the arbitrary, like everyone has to be at 180. What now they're looking at is that it's more a five to 10% increase above that person's average at their self-selected, uh, running speed. And that's, um, that's and steps then, per minute, right? For, for those who, yep. yeah. Yes. Um, but other things that I look at, uh, you know, arm swing, uh, are they, you know, aggressively crossing over their body? Are they, you know, wasting energy there? I want to see kind of just more of a, a glide at, at their sides. Um, what else? 
I, I would say, yeah, the overstriding and the overstriking are are the two big ones that I that I'm looking at. You know, I'll pay attention to their um, their hip drop, contralateral hip drop, um, opposite of their striking leg or their stance leg. Um, uh, trying to think what else it's hard to on treadmills, their like vertical oscillation. That's something that people will often talk about, but that's going to increase on the treadmill. So it's hard to be like, Oh, well you have to stop that. <laughs> um, but when I, when I do the evaluations, I record everything just on my iPad and then I show them everything. But I, I, I try to not point out every little detail because then the next run that they go on, they're like running like a robot because they're overanalyzing everything. So I, not that I try and downplay it, but I only try and point out the things that I think are really, you know, contributing to something or could be a problem down the line. If it's not a problem, going to set them up for potential problems, I might not bring it up. It, It also depends on, what the, you know, how much this person is wanting to know if they're like, they want to geek out and they want to know everything. I'm like, all right, let, let's dig into this. Um, but if I see that someone's a little bit more timid, I, you know, sometimes less is more. Yeah. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you're thinking about your outcomes and if you were to load them up with every little thing or everything that crossed through your mind, that probably would would make it more likely that we get some paralysis by analysis or at least get an outcome that you didn't intend to get. And <clears throat> I've worked with just a, a few runners, but the example that I run into more often are, you know, strength athletes, people who are in the gym who have been told at some point that, <clears throat> excuse me, some particular biomechanical pattern is wrong. So like squatting with their knees past their toes or if their knees get into a little bit of valgus, like that's terrible. It's the knee bowler, right, Quinn? Mm-hmm. It'll get you. Um, so w- with those people, one thing that I try to, to do, like as we start the, the assessment, maybe I'm just looking at how they're, they're standing or sitting, and then we get into getting them to do whatever things seem relevant to them. Um, like you said, I'm probably making note of a few different things and also weighing out what, I guess it's a two part system, what things I think are worth addressing at some point, And then also what things I think are worth telling them about at that moment in time. And also, like you said, it's not about being dishonest or, or, you know, not sharing all information that might be relevant, but it's also just sort of playing the odds, you know, what what's necessary right now um, and making mental notes. Say, I'll circle back around to this later or if they seem super keen, then sharing more. Do you find that you have to do a lot of re-education with people that you work with, whether it's in more of a rehab context or more of the coaching in terms of um, people having been told that this particular strike pattern is wrong, or you need to be at this step rate or or any of these other sort of arbitrary sort of tenets. Does that happen a lot? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Almost every runner has had some pre, you know, preconceived notion that one way is the, the best way, whether it, it might not be about all of those things, but it, strike uh, strike pattern or step rate or that they, you know, shouldn't do strength training or that they need to foam roll every day or, you know, so there's a lot and lot of re-education. So I find that I have the, the, the 
best um, communications and education with people that are coming in as, as my clients or coaching, not just like one-off run evals, um, just because I can have those conversations time and time again. Like recently I've worked with a girl who was put in orthotics like a year ago and like we, we like, like each session I taught, I was like, yeah, you know, you might not need those someday. Like maybe we just start trying to wean off of them. And I actually recorded her running with them and without them and her running looked no different. And I showed her that. And I was like, look at this, there's no difference. And she's like, Oh my God, that's crazy. And then little by little each week, she's like, yeah, I don't think I did any runs this week with my orthotics. And I felt fine. I was like, (laughs) yes this is amazing (laughs) so it it definitely pays off to continue to educate them time and time again and you know obviously not try and sound like a broken record but just exposing them to different thought processes and that you know there isn't just one way and it's not just one shoe that's going to be the best shoe for everyone and you know runners are unique. They all have different bodies and different ways of going about things that it it really can work. You just have to figure out if it works best for that person. Do you ever get backfire effect from the people who, who want the answer, like what the shoe is or what the right way to run is? And you're like, there isn't one. And they're like, that's not what I wanted. Does that happen much? (laughs) Uh, a little bit, but I, I try and just joke with them. I'm like, honestly, I was like, go to the shoe store. Like if it's for shoes, go to the shoe store and try on every pair of shoes. Because I was like, that's their job. I was like, you have to try on every pair of shoes and you find which one's comfortable. They're like, really? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, don't walk out of the store unless you're comfortable. They're like, well, what about, I'm like, doesn't matter. They're like, oh, okay. (laughs) <laughs> so I, t- I try and have a little humor with them and my patients know them and coaching clients know I'm pretty sarcastic. So that, I feel like that helps, uh, cut, <laughs> cut it down a little bit. Love it. The orthotics is an interesting piece because sometimes you have to be delicate with how you navigate that. A lot of times they have orthotics because another healthcare professional recommended it. So I like, yes. I like how you frame that. Hey, you know, why don't we just see what it feels like and what it looks like? Can't hurt. Big shrug. Just curious. Yeah. <laughs> um, That's basically what I did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice. The the biomechanics, when you, you mentioned things like step rate and strike pattern and arm swing, these types of things make complete sense when you're talking about just efficiency and leverages and force transfer, these types of things to improve performance. Do you also use those same cues or you're looking at the same things when we're talking about clinical situations where somebody's experiencing pain, do biomechanics still play a part in your evaluation? And with that kind of follow-up question, what are some of the things you're seeing in the clinic that tend to correlate with some of these biomechanical things that you're also seeing? Okay. Uh, first question. Um, if you ask me to repeat it, I, I don't remember. 
Okay. <laughs> no, so I, I, they, no, I'm just kidding. I, I, I got you. So the, the, the first, yes, um, when people are having pain, they're, I do look to see if there's something going on. I try and elicit that in, in the evaluation or in, if it doesn't happen the first session by the second section, um, depending on how extensive the subjective is. Um, and I was like, okay, what, like, is it coming on? When, when is it coming on in your run? Um, something like step rate is something that I go to, um, initially if it is lower and say they're having knee pain. So that is one thing by increasing your step rate by, by 5%, it decreases the load, um, at the knee by 20%. So that's like, you know, the, the low hanging fruit, it's like, yes, let's up your step rate. And then you do it and they're like, Oh yeah, that actually feels a little bit better because they're, they're by spending, by turning their feet over faster, they're spending less time on each foot. So the cumulative load is less. And then when I explain it to them, they're like, Oh, that makes sense. And then they use, I get them on a, you know, cadence retraining program and Two weeks later of them doing it consistently, they're like, yeah, I feel pretty good. Cool. That there was no magic in what I did. I just led you, led you to the water. <laughs> um, is it so, similar with foot strike as well as far as load with the f- striking pattern? Uh, what do you mean? So a higher step rate can just over the, over the haul of an entire run can decrease overall load on some of those tissues does strike pattern also have uh, uh um does like if your heel striker versus midfoot versus forefoot does that have an effect on on the same type of deal as far as load through the tissues um so different strike patterns so um a four foot strike is going to put more of a load on the po- like posterior chain. So calf Achilles. So if someone's having Achilles pain, I'm almost going to try them to, uh, to get them to uh, land more midfoot or even get them to a rear foot strike um, to try and, and that might mean that it means slowing down their cadence if they're turning over really quickly. So it, it really gets, patient specific based on what they're presenting with and how they're presenting from a biomechanics standpoint, you know, um, heel strike, that's more of that overshotting with the lock out of the knee. That's going to send more up the chain. Um, another biomechanical thing, like if someone has an aggressive contralateral pelvic drop, when they're strike, you know, on the left side, when they strike with their right side, then, you know, that, could be putting stress on the lateral structure. So, you know, biomechanics plays a role, but I wouldn't say that it's the end all be all. A lot of people were from my uh, perspective is I get it from their history where they're like, yeah, so I did a hill workout and a speed workout and a long run. And then I, you know, did a stair workout and now my knees hurt. And I'm like, okay. Um, so it it really comes down to like load management and getting people to train consistently, you know, all of the biomechanical factors 
play a role, but it is not, I think, a bit as big a, co- a contributor as people think it is. You know, people want to fix one thing versus having healthy training habits consistently. Uh, so that's across the board. And it, we talk yeah. about the same <laughs> things with barbell sport athletes. They want that perfect looking squat. But they're doing the small off 10 by 10 German squat volume, plus the training for the CrossFit Open, plus doing this new weightlifting. Like you said, they're doing 10 different things all at once. And but if I just if I can run, per, you know, I'm watching the videos on YouTube and I'm, I'm watching my favorite runners so I can run perfectly. I like how you said some of the biomechanical cues that you use will actually take them the other way. If that's what if that's what's appropriate for the individual. And we talk about the same thing with, with strength training and we'll manipulate different variables or, or positions, maybe even in the short term. And I'll, and I'll tell them this may be just a temporary change. We're just, we're just altering the force distribution right now. We're just letting the tissues cool off. We're changing something. They can cool off and you might just go back to running however you ran before. But because we're going to manage your program a lot better, you're actually going to be able to tolerate that. Is that accurate? Yes. So if someone has a proximal hamstring strain and they tell me, you know, when I run at conversational pace and I'm just running with my friend, I actually feel pretty good once I, once I warm up. But when I run uphill and I, I try and pick up my speed to, you know, uh, eight pace, that's when my pain comes on and I can't walk the next day. Okay. So you told me that you feel good running at conversational pace with no pushback. Cool. That's really awesome. That's something you can do without pushback. But then you tell me there's two things that elicit this response. Okay. So, you know, not that, not to say that you're never going to run up a hill again and you're never going to run sub 830 pace, but right now for this, you know, window, while things are really pissed off, let's do what you can do. Okay go run at nine minute pace for 30 minutes and it not get pissed off. Then as your tissues start to heal and you get stronger and you gradually expose them, then yeah, we can add either hills or a little bit of speed work, not both, (laughs) you know? So it's, you know, just with, you know, PT or strength training, finding that entry point to loading. Same applies to running you just find wh- where is that that point that they can tolerate or that time frame that they can tolerate. So say their pain comes on at four miles. All right, then for the next couple runs, let's just do three miles and see how it goes. Uh, so it's very, very similar concepts. It's so similar. It's so simple too. You find, you identify the triggers, you find the thresholds and in my experience, a lot of these athletes are like, oh yeah, well that makes sense. It's almost too, it's almost like too simple for them to, you know what I mean? It's like, oh no, that's not, it's not complicated or fancy enough. You're just telling yeah. me to like do like something slightly less or slightly different even. Um, there's a lot of those two examples that you gave running at conversational pace, running at 830 pace, maybe even up a hill. Well, there's a lot of in between there. 
Yes. So let's see. Yeah. I, I did give the same example with an empty barbell. It's fine. I keep going back to strength training because that's what I know. I'm sorry. That's I was fine. a sprinter. No, I was a sprinter. Comparison. Yeah. Okay. But I, there's so many parallels because I'll say the exact same thing. They'll, they'll tell me it, my knee hurts when I squat 90% or above. I say, okay, this is going to be a stupid question, but just let me ask you, just humor me. This is what I'll say to them. What if you did your entire workout with the empty barbell? Would you be okay? And most of the time they say, well, yeah, it's super light. It's the empty barbell. I'm super strong. You know, that in that, in that exact same voice. <laughs> and I say, okay, just like you said, Danielle. So this is an intensity or a capacity issue. You can do the movement at low stress in a low stress environment at a certain point of stress, i.e. load, weight on the bar, whatever we want to call it. We've surpassed your capacity. There's a lot of in between there where we can find still get a lot of good work in. Like your your athlete training at a nine minute pace, you can still get quality training in that way, or maybe even a hill that's not as graded. It's just not it's just not quite as steep, or you don't run on that particular hill as long. Like you, just, so many variables that you can that you can manipulate there. And when you frame it the way that you were framing it, I think that gives the athlete a lot of options. They, you know, they can kind of feel in control of that. I want to jump in just to say that, sorry, Danielle, you're going to say something. No. And I, I think that's the big thing when I, when I work with, uh, runners is I try and give them as many options as possible. And very, very rarely do I ever say, you have to stop running for eight months. Like unless they have something extremely sinister and I'm like, all right, you're on the verge of getting a stress fracture or stress reaction or a full blown fracture, or there's something else more serious going on that those are the circumstances where I'm going to be like, all right, you, we need to like rein it in and, and really take a look at what's going on and monitor this carefully. But if it's something low grade or uh, tendon issues, there's ways to work around it. Uh, you know, whether it's just changing the the running the running workout, um, adding in some fitness walking, and I tell them this is for now. This is temporary until your body can tolerate the next step. Well, I think that's important because, I mean, we, we've just talked about how it's it's difficult to get people to to buy into the idea of you know, changing course in some not necessarily major way, some some small way to allow them to continue to train, um, but in a way that doesn't continue to piss off or aggravate their symptoms. But I think that, you know, without making this too deep of a conversation, we can maybe point to some of the blow to their identity um, that's, that's, you know, injured, just perhaps as much as their physical symptoms might lead them to think that they're injured. You know, if, if I know for me, like I've, I've worked with Quinn, Originally, we started working together to help me rehab a hamstring injury that I've had for a little bit. Um, Quinn, one of the things you said to me was, you know, we found a, an intensity threshold of, say, 80% for squats or deadlifts or something. You're like, all right, we have 79 other percentages to work with. And I thought, okay, that's that helps me to understand that it's it's not really this dichotomous. It's what I want to do or it's nothing. Um, or put a different way, emotionally, it's like I'm either how I usually am, or I'm not myself. It's less dichotomous and more of this sort of gradient where I'm not necessarily doing what I intended to do at this point in time, but it's still pretty damn close. 
still able to feel like I'm putting work in. Um, and I think that, like you said, Danielle, letting them know that this is a temporary thing, really harping on that point. It's not like you're never going to be able to do, a, you know, activity X again or or doing it in this particular way. Again, it's just right now can't really tolerate it. We know that we still want to keep you training. Just want to get you through the rehab process and lose as little fitness as we possibly can, or even take this as an opportunity to work on other things that maybe we haven't worked on. Um, you know, where's the, the opportunity or the silver lining in it. And then as things start to clear up, we'll get you back to, to being closer to or at, or even beyond where you, you wanted to be. But, but I think that's just the importance of, of, working with people holistically and recognizing that, you know, we're not just dealing with potentially injured tissues. It's, you know, the, the mental, the emotional side of things and how we're never really able to separate those. Danielle, do you think being a runner has helped you as a clinician or endurance athlete has helped you as a clinician in, in treating that same population? Absolutely. Like hands down, I, it, they have complimented each other, so well, I think being a PT and gaining more experience has helped me become a better endurance athlete, but being an endurance athlete and working hand in hand with that population, um, has definitely helped. Uh, I think me telling them my stories, if they ask, you know, and I'm like, Oh yeah, I've had that injury. It, it totally sucks. Like I had to take some downtime when I was training for this race. And then you just start talking about the races and they forget that they were even talking about their pain. And, you know, I think it, it's worked really well. And I think validates where I'm coming from and, and what I'm telling them, you know, I'm suggesting them something because this is something that I've I've tried myself. This is something that I've done to rehab myself to get back to training. Um, and then from a coaching perspective, you know, being a PT, I think also helped me as a coach because I'm going at it from two angles and I'm, I'm looking at it from a conservative side when I need to be, but then I know when I can ramp things up and really push the envelope. We talked about differences or potential differences between, you know, higher end competitive athletes and more recreational or even beginner athletes. Tell me if you agree. I think that with those competitive athletes, they're they're probably going to be a little bit more. Um, be critical is not the right word, but they'll be looking probably for a rehab professional who's got a little bit more street cred or who can, you know, walk the walk. Um, and again, I, I haven't worked with a ton of runners, but for powerlifters, I've had some come through, some of whom I've known ahead of time, but some of whom I haven't. And so sit them down, they, they start telling me their story. And then I'll say, yeah, I have this injury and I can compete. And, oh, what, what weight class, you know, what federation, you know, what's your, what's your winner at max, your squat, bench, deadlift, you pull sumo conventional, just like start talking shop with them. And it's relevant, but sometimes the light goes on like, oh, okay, this, this person gets it. Um, do you find that's the case with, with you when you're working primarily or yeah, primarily with those, those higher end athletes or just maybe even in general? Yeah, I, I think it definitely goes a long way. Um, and then there's a common ground. You're not just all of a sudden, you're not just talking about why they can't do their activity. You're talking about what races are coming up. And then they start at like picking my brain. They're like, Oh, what are you training for? And they all of a sudden want to know my life story and you know, what, what my training looks like. And I'm like, how are you feeling? How are you doing? Okay. Like, 
we get back to your exercises that I need to tell you before time's up. <laughs> but it, it lightens the mood because they, it, I think it sometimes shifts the attention a, away from what they're there for to kind of just have a regular conversation with a runner in their community or a triathlete in their community that understands the training demands and that understands how it stinks to not be able to train at a full capacity. Um, so I, I think it, it actually balances it out really well. You said how being a clinician has also helped your own training. Do you ever find though that it, you become overly doctor on yourself and you start kind of like thinking about everything in that, in that way, almost overanalyzing? Uh, yeah. Yes. And no, uh, knock on wood. I've had, I would say like three years of like pretty good training cycles without any significant injuries, knock on wood. Um, however, (laughs) 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 however, uh, this happened to me last weekend, two weekends ago when I did an Olympic triathlon and I, I did really well and felt great. Like didn't feel anything during the race, during the run bike, everything felt great. Getting when I finished, maybe two hours later, stood up from lunch and I could not wait there on my foot. And I was like, what is going on? And I went into like total patient freakout mode. I was like, how can I not walk? Like I cannot even hop on one leg right now. Like I must have, like I started spiraling in my own head of like, what if I have a stress fracture? Like this totally feels bony. Like I can't walk. I can't plantar flex my foot. I'm having this conversation with my husband and he's like, so, so do you think you need to go to the hospital? And I was like, no, no, I don't need to go to the hospital. I'm going to wait till tomorrow. And he's like, I I think you're going to be okay. And I was like, I don't know. This hurts way too much. Like, and then you just start getting all these thoughts and thinking back, I think I might've hit my foot somewhere on a rock getting out of the water, but because I was in race mode, nothing phased me. Because like there was no bruising, there was nothing. I was like, why can't I wait there? And the next day it was still sore and I moved it around and I was fine. (laughs) But, you know, these things go from zero to a hundred in like one hour. And I was talking myself out of like not doing anything for like two weeks. (laughs) But it's funny because yeah, and we see patients like that. It's, I think it's valuable to be on the other side of it. Because it's easy for us. I'm not experiencing what the person in front of me is experiencing. And they're, and they've got some angst about it. And I'm like, ah, you know, you'll be fine. Uh, and, and in their mind, it's like, what the hell, man? I can't even do XYZ. And so it was like kind of similar with you and your husband. You know, I think you're going to be okay. And you're like, you don't know. You don't know what I'm feeling. <laughs> Uh, so no, I, I think that's, I think that's, well, you got a great coach too. Yes. As, yes, I do. That probably helps if, if anything to know that you're, that there's a plan, you know? Yeah. And I, I actually called him that, I think it was either that night or the next day. And I was like, Chris, I don't know what happened, but I couldn't wait there. <laughs> and now it's the next day and I can wait there, but I think I have some tenderness on my fifth met. And I think that's where I hit it. Cause that's where there's scab. And he's like, yeah, you know, it sounds, 
Sounds like you're doing okay. Yeah. This is all normal <laughs> to uh, have some weird things feel after the, uh, the a- after a race. And, you know, if you hit it, it might ju- might have just felt weird. But, like, how was the race? And I was like, oh, the race was great. <laughs> he's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> he's like, We're all right. right. I-, I think he's like, let's see how it feels tomorrow. And I, I think you're going to be okay. I'm like, all right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of it's just the unknown. It's like, all right, yeah, you yeah. You, you bruised your foot, you sprained your foot. Congratulations. You know, had it had you realized it right from the jump, like when you hit it on whatever you hit it, and you re- and you knew it, and then it was that sore, you'd be like, you'd probably still be a little worried, but you'd be like, well, I know when it happened. Like this is not surprising, but it's like that that initial, what the hell? All of a sudden, I can't walk. You know that? Yeah, yeah that can be a scary thing. Um, <laughs> But, but again, our patients experience those, those types of things. But when we're on the outside, it makes sense from Chris's standpoint. He's like, yeah, you just, you just like competed in a big event and now you're feeling some, some backlash from it. You know, no big deal. Let's, let's see how it plays out, but you're the one experiencing it is much easier said than done. So it's, it's just, it's funny to have that, that kind of back and forth, but I'm sure, I'm sure those types of things help you then. Again, as as a clinician, then hearing a very a, a similar subjective, you know, oh yeah, the, you know, I I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, no, definitely helps. Now you uh, footwear. I don't want to go too. <laughs> you just because you've <laughs> just because you've mentioned it a few times, and I know we're going to get questions about it. They're gonna people are not going to hear this whole like workload trust the process thing. They're going to hear. How should I run and what shoes should I wear? So <laughs> with, with footwear, is it, does it make that big of a difference? And follow up question, probably more important. Are there just some general considerations to keep in mind when you're looking, looking for a shoe? If we're talking about either for running in particular or maybe even um, a trail shoe or, or something like that. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to, there's a specific weight for the pair of shoes. I am going to say it's 480 milligrams for, for the, the pair of shoes. Chris is going to be like, why don't you know this? <laughs> um, but, it, but that's, that's the weight that they should be. Anything heavier gets too heavy. That's the optimal weight for the pair of shoes. But as far as style or heel to toe drop, you know, I, I have my favorites, but that doesn't mean that they're the best shoe. Um, the big thing when people are get are getting fit for shoes is that they take out the inner and stand on it and make sure that the the insole actually captures their foot. If they're standing on it and they have a wide foot and there's on, they're on this narrow narrow shoe and they're flapping over the side before they're even putting their foot in the shoe, that shoe's not going to fit them well and they're uh, they're probably you're going to start seeing that like fifth met like hanging out the side and you're like mm. That's not good. Um, so that's one way that someone can find a shoe that is well fit um, for their foot. Um, and also measuring it to um, maybe like a thumbs width uh, in front of 
or longer than their longest toe. And for some people, that could be their second toe. That could be their middle toe. Sometimes you got funky toes. That's cool. But measure it to the longest one um, versus just the first toe. Um, other specifics. I mean, <clears throat> a a lower drop shoe is going to uh, to bias um, more of a forefoot strike. So more of an Achilles or gastroc load. So if someone has a history of, you know, Achilles, um, pathology or cast strains, you know, maybe going a little bit higher, they don't have to be in 10 millimeter drop shoe. Um, and what I'm talking about heel to toe differential, that's like the measure from where the heel is to where the toe is or yeah. So a higher, Uh, a higher drop is a higher heel. Yes. Yeah. Um, but then you have like something funky, like a Hoka, which has a lot of cushion, but still only maybe a five millimeter drop, but it has this like honky cushion. So, you know, that versus an ASICS that has a seven millimeter drop, you know, that's where it comes down to comfort and, and what people are, are comfortable running in, you know, trying to get someone in the most minimal shoe that's appropriate for them is what I try and do. Um, you know, I'm not like, Oh, you need a stability shoe or you need a minimalist shoe. You know, I tend to start, you know, not that I'm giving people shoes or recommending shoes, but I say, you know, start with something neutral and then try something above it and try something below it and find something in between that feels good. Um, running in two different types of shoes. So different brand, different style, different heel to toe drop has actually been shown, um, to decrease injury risk by 39%. So that's something that I make sure to mention to runners, if it's in their budget to have two pairs of shoes that they're rotating through, um, that that's, you know, worth, worth, um, investing in. Um, so the foot and the muscle and tissues are always having to adapt to something different. Cause like I run in Brooks launch and on, um, on clouds. So I run a little bit different because one's that I think it's like seven, seven millimeter drop. And then one's like a four or five. So I tend to have a slightly more mid foot or full footed strike in the ons because it's a lower drop and I run a little bit differently than I do in the launch. So, you know, and that, and that's okay. You know, having, having different striking patterns or slightly different mechanics and different types of shoes is, is fine because it means that your, your body is able to adapt well. Well, we've talked about variation in training. That's just another, it's just another way to do it. It's a task constraint. Yeah. When you say alternate, could it be like every other run or, or generally maybe potentially something like that? Yeah. I do it based on like longer runs and shorter runs. So my shorter runs, so anything less than seven, I'll, I'll run in my ons. Um, and then if I'm, if I'm half marathon or marathon training, uh, those longer distance runs, I'm, I'm throwing on the, the Brooks. It's interesting. Well, this has been fantastic, Danielle. Thanks so much. I wanted to end. You you got a big trip coming up, and I do. And it's gonna be, 
have a lot to do with the endurance athlete world and, and the health of the endurance athlete. And I wanted to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I am taking an amazing trip. I leave a week from tomorrow. So Tuesday, don't know, maybe this will play by then. Um, and I'll already be in Australia. So I am going to Sydney, um, to work with the guys and gals at iMove physical, uh, physiotherapy. Um, and the, the specific clinic that I'll be at is the one that they have collaborated with, uh, Alex Bell of the running room. So it's, uh, the running room meets iMove physiotherapy and I'll be there with him um, Patty and Michael risk. And yeah, I'm super pumped. Um, the running room has a really nice treadmill that has force plates and, uh, cool. some awesome video equipment for video analysis. So I'll be learning the more technical side of things more than, uh, what my little iPad can collect. Um, and be teaming up with them to put out some good educational content uh, for runners and triathletes. And um, I'll also have the opportunity to mentor with uh, Mick, who will be mentoring me with some business stuff. So I can bring back some good stuff to grow my business. Oh, that's awesome. Sounds like an amazing opportunity. Yeah, I'm I'm very pumped. I will be there from July. I arrive July 18th and I'll be back September 20th. Uh, so I will be doing my webinars from Australia, which is exciting. Maybe by then I'll have an Australian accent. Who knows? <laughs> that would be That's hilarious. Yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll see what you I have come to, up You have with. to fake it now, or at least if you don't have it, it's got to... <laughs> I do, I do pick up accents pretty quickly, so I would not be surprised. <laughs> oh, that would <laughs> be throw incredible. a couple mates in there. Yes. <laughs> Where can people connect with you and learn more uh, about you? Yeah. So I'm most active on Instagram at runfitdoc. Um, I do also go on Facebook, um, just Daniel Adler Crew, or you can find it, um, more information at starting line PT and performance on Facebook. And then as far as my, uh, physical therapy and coaching business, that's at starting line, Awesome. And again, Danielle's going to be doing those two webinars in August and we're really, really looking forward to it. This podcast will come out before then as, uh, to get your, to get your palate ready for what's to come. <laughs> and, Danielle, thanks so much. This was really, really great. Thank you guys so much. I'm very excited for August. Jared, thanks for joining us as usual. My pleasure, man. Thank you. I wish John was here because then we could have asked him about how much running that he does. John is a powerlifter. <laughs> it's about as, about as much as me, probably even less. And I already do none, so. I'm going to go. Running. Well, I like, I really think the two pairs of shoes ideas is interesting um yeah yeah, well, yeah. cool well <laughs> i might i might ask more questions about that on the during the webinar um Not a okay danielle thanks again this was really really great and we will talk soon all right sounds good guys chat soon